How many of us, if we're honest, can barely stomach the thought of divine judgment? It's a serious topic. Uh, we may be those who genuinely believe the Bible and acknowledge the reality and the rightness of God's wrath and even eternal hell, but still mostly try and avoid the subject. In a way, um, you could say that we tolerate God's judgment, but our instinct is to turn away from it. Uh, maybe if interrogated under a bright light or injected with truth serum or something like that, we may admit to being a touch embarrassed by it, disappointed by it, or even just a little bit annoyed at God about it. But is God unjust in punishing the wicked now and at the end of all things on the day of judgment? Now we're asking that question because these chapters of Revelation, chapters 8 to 11, are all about the trumpet judgments, God's present outpouring of wrath and the wrath to come. Okay, Trumpets 1 to 6 that we've looked at already in recent weeks expound really what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 where he says the wrath of God is being, present tense, poured, uh, revealed from heaven against all the wickedness, uh, godlessness and wickedness of people. And we've seen from previous weeks that the first four trumpet judgments, uh, as the, those trumpets are sounded, God pours out his wrath on the world that the wicked inhabit. When trumpets five and six are sounded, God pours out his wrath on the wicked themselves. And chapter nine ended with that very sombre note that these people remain uh, unrepentant. Now, trumpet seven is the final judgment, the final woe in this cycle, because it represents the final judgment, the one that is to come, where God punishes unrepentant sinners with that which Jesus himself said should give them the greatest cause to respond to him. He has the power to damn them to hell. But is he right to do that? This interlude, this break between uh, trumpet six and seven, tell us, yes, he is, and tells us why that is. You see, chapters 10 and 11 explain how God has not left the world without a witness to his existence or to his gospel by which people could be saved. Therefore, God is not unjust to judge the world for rejecting him and the gospel that he holds out. Now, before we do dive in, I have to encourage you to listen closely to this and afterwards go and check what I've said along with what the scripture says, because these chapters are super complex. Studying it this week has required significantly more time and significantly more caffeine uh, than usual. Now, remember, as you look at it, remember what we've tried to teach already through it, that this is apocalyptic literature, a genre that's highly symbolic, and it takes a good mental workout and a lot of Old Testament cross-referencing in order to understand what's happening in these passages. In addition, when it comes to passages like this, and later on in Revelation as well, there are so many different avenues of interpretation, and quite a few cul-de-sacs as well, that make it kind of feel like you're walking through a mental maze. Sometimes you hit a dead end, sometimes you're taking down a route for a good length of time thinking, oh, this is the way, and then you realise it's not, and then you come back, okay? Now, of all the different interpretative options that are out there, there are really three main ones, right? Number one is uh, the post-millennialist or preterist view. 
Um, this is where some people think the verses that we're talking about here basically refer to events that have taken place in the past around the events of AD 70 in John's lifetime, indeed. Others think these verses refer to events that are solely in the future and time-framed as such. They're called premillennialists or dispensational premillennialists, in case you're interested, or futurists as well, which sounds quite fun. But a third group interpret these chapters as symbolic references, uh, not to be taken literal, literalistically, but literally in keeping with the genre. That is, these symbols uh, describe events between the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the final return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they're called amillennialists or idealists. And for the eagle-eyed among you, you'll realise that that's the tack that I've been taking uh, throughout this book. Am I right? Well, time will tell. That's a revelation joke for you and a bad one as well. Uh, but please do dig into this yourself. Figure it out. Uh, explore it. It's worth doing. And uh, I mean, I take the preaching of God's word to the people God has given me to love super seriously. And it would be great to make sure that on even all the time, and especially on an occasion like this, um, that you folks listen with uh, super seriousness as well and check it out. Anyway, let's get stuck in. And let me hang this on two main points. With this whole idea of God's judgment in mind, let's, let, me, let me hang on these two points. Number one, God has not left the world without a witness to his gospel. Um, and secondly, God is not unjust to, bring, uh, to judge the world for rejecting the gospel. The first point, like last time, is significantly longer than the second. Uh, number one then, God has not left the world without a witness to his gospel. This is chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to 14 of chapter 11. And the first thing we see in this section is that God has given the world his word. He's declared in plain and simple terms what exactly is going to happen. And chapter 10 shows us how. Warnings. Okay, warnings. It tells us that God is spoken by his prophets. We see that in verses 1 to 7, where John is given um, very clear instruction, uh, or he's given God's words about the end, okay? He hears it from this mighty angel who by all appearances sounds like God. Some actually say that this is Christ speaking on this occasion, but it's more likely to be a messenger of Christ who reflects his glory and speaks with this delegated authority from him. And he certainly has authority. If you look with me at verse two, you, you I mean, talk about a power stance. Uh, here is an angel who straddles both the land and the sea. Now, except it's not the positioning of the feet that matters. Remember a, a few years ago, uh, Theresa May and Donald Trump were clearly getting some instructions from the same life coach about that specific power stance that they should take um, when speaking in public and standing in public, then it looked crazy ridiculous. Well, on this occasion, it's a power stance, except it's not the positioning of the feet that conveys the authority, it's what's under them. You see, everything is under this angel's feet. In the Old Testament, whatever was under your feet, that was your dominion, okay? Now, what does John eventually hear when this angel speaks? Well, he hears the angel cry out or shout aloud, and then a response. 
It's seven thunders responding to the angel shout. Now that should be an uh-oh moment for anyone who's been reading this book so far. We've already had seven seals. We're nearly at the end of seven trumpets. If you've read ahead, you know that we've got seven bowls of wrath to come. So the thought of seven thunders, is this another round of, um, of judgments to come? A fourth round? A perfect, complete number? Wow, well, yes, it sounds like it. But what are they? Well, we don't actually know. John was ready to write it down, but was told not to. Paul, of course, in 2 Corinthians, had a similar experience with a heavenly vision that he had. And that tells us clearly there are some things about what, who God is and what God says and what God plans to do that we don't know about. That in his sovereign will, they'll remain unknown until the end. And how humbling that is. I mean, how kind of God all the same uh, to focus our minds on the things that actually have been revealed so that we know how we ought to live. Like the second thing that this angel declares in this uh, second big announcement, that the truth about the coming judgment. If you look with me at verses five to seven, you've got the angels, he's kind of acting like he's a courtroom witness, raising his hand in pledge to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the angel effectively swears on God's life that God's plan will come to pass. That's in verse six B, look with me. There will be no more delay, he says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. See what he's saying? What God says, he will do. What was prophesied in the Old Testament is going to come to pass beyond our lifetime. What Jesus himself promised either implicitly in his teaching or explicitly in passages like Matthew 23, 24 and 25 concerning the end, it's going to come to pass. His words will not fall. The end will come and with it, the judgment of the wicked. Okay? There's no chance of it not happening. No rogue nation, no unruly king or cohort of, of nations, not even Satan and a billion strong army of demons can stop it. Judgment is going to be poured out. Judgment is coming. And this is how God warns the world. He gives this message to his prophets. And what do they do? Well, the prophets declare God's word. That's what you see in verses 8 to 11. He gives them his word and instructs them to declare his word. Now, to make this super clear, John has given two instructions in verses 8 to 11. First of all, verse 9 eat this book. The angel was carrying this little scroll in his hand. I don't think it's the same scroll that the Lord opened up in Revelation chapter 5, um, uh, or took and opened in 5 and following. Um, but, I, 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 but I think it's a little scroll which clearly contains information about what John is to preach and to declare. And uh, it's given to John to ingest and digest. Now, it's uh, it's sweet to his his taste, but it's sour to his stomach. Does that remind you of anyone? No, not your kids who've eaten way too many sweets in one go, um, or or that bloated feeling that you get when you just eat too many, too much popcorn at the cinema. Um, but it reminds us of Ezekiel from the Old Testament. Ezekiel, who was told to eat God's word and taste the sweetness of it, even though his experience of proclaiming it to the people of God back then in exile would be bitter. 
God had basically said to him in chapter 3 of Ezekiel, whether they listen or not, say this. That's your responsibility. So that's the first of John's instructions. The second of his instructions is simply proclaim my word. Tell them about what's going to happen in the world. Okay, that's verse 11. Prophesy again about what God is going to do to the world and in the world so that people are without excuse. And do so knowing that while the message itself will be sweet to you, even for you, John, and for others who proclaim it, the experience of proclaiming it will be sour. It will be bitter. And that's the point the scroll communicates. So in summary then, uh, God has not left the world without a witness to his gospel or warnings about his wrath. Chapter 10 says God has given the world his word through the apostles and prophets whose words and instructions have been written down, canonised in a book called the Bible for our information for our instruction, for our use. And that is what this Bible is for. Warning after warning in it is given, in imperatives and in narratives, in explicit terms and in implicit appeals. The word is repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is coming soon. Do you know him? Have you heard this word? Have you read this word? Have you had someone sit down and explain it to you? Have you heeded it? We are playing with fire if we have not. And we are playing with fire if we have heard it and not yet repented. So turn from sin, trust in Jesus, the only one who, as 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, God has not left the world without a witness to the gospel. Chapter 10 says God has given, his, given his, the world his word as the first of two enduring testimonies in this first section. The second that we see in chapter 11 says that God has given the world his church. God has given the world his church. So the church is God's witness to the world through its ministry. We see that in verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6 tell us four things about the church <clears throat> that make it a faithful witness. Firstly, the church is made up of worshippers. Now, when John is given this measuring rod in chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, he might as well be given a hard hat as well because he's, he's, he's a surveyor performing an assessment uh, of the temple. But it's not an actual building. It's not the actual temple, I believe, that he is measuring. No, the temple at the time of John's writing is destroyed. And some, of course, according to the premillennial view, expect a temple to be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem in place of the, the mosque that stands there just now. And, and that's what John, in his vision, is said to be measuring but, but I can't square that with what the New Testament says about the temple uh, and even taking in a wider biblical theology of what the temple of God is. You see, Jesus in John 2 comes and when he clears the temple, very clearly says, I'm the new temple. I'm the new temple. I'm where you go to meet with God now, not to this place. God's presence is not in there, in the Holy of Holies. God's presence is in here in me, the incarnate son of God. 
Uh, the book of Hebrews would say something similar to the point that the temple and its practices are now obsolete. Uh, it's hard to imagine how they could be reinstated. And Peter then says that we're all living stones as part of the temple or the body of Christ as well. So there's a bigger theology that shapes our understanding of what's going on in this passage. So that makes me think that John is measuring a spiritual temple. In other words, he's measuring the people of God who are symbolically speaking, positioned in the Holy of Holies. In other words, in the presence of God themselves, in Christ, and safely so. There's another reason why I think that, and we'll get to that in the second section of this. But effectively here, John is told is told not to measure, to measure that, to measure the people of God, but also to not measure the outer courts because they've been compromised by the world, like many churches in Scotland today. So the church is made up of true worshippers, hidden in Christ, measuring them based on more Old Testament cross-references would actually add to our understanding of this by communicating not just, wow, this is an encouraging size, an expansive number of people as the gospel travels from person to person to person and place to place to place, spreading out across the whole globe. It's actually communicating not just size by expansion, but solidity and strength. There is a security about being in that place and in Christ himself. So a saved church is what God is growing. A saved church made up of true worshippers who together offer, guess what? An enduring witness to the world of the gospel of God, which includes, yes, that he is a saviour, but also a just judge. Now that testimony is louder still because of the second thing that we see in this uh, description in verses 1 to 6 of the church's ministry. It's filled with God's spirit. In verse 3 we meet these two witnesses described in verse 4 as two olive trees and two lampstands. Um, it's all speaking about the same two folks it seems but are these two actual prophets who'll come back or, or who'll arrive before the end of days and uh, premillennialists believe so, um, thinking that they could represent Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, for example. But again, if you apply the classic principle that scripture interprets scripture and context counts, we can see firstly from the book of Revelation itself that the lampstands are churches. John does not really mix his metaphors here or his symbols, should I say. But even when you look back to the Old Testament, and this, the principle of scripture interpreting scripture, where does this take you to? Where have you seen olive trees and lampstands before? Well, Zechariah 4, of course. You know that famous passage where we have that, where we have that verse of not by might, not by power, uh, not by might, I've, I've got, I do it off the top of my head so I'm forgetting it because I'm under pressure. Not by might, but by my spirit declares the Lord. Anyway, I'll remember it next time. Um, so we, in Zechariah 4, we have these two olive trees plumbed uh, directly into a lampstand to signify God's Spirit's constant empowering, fueling of God's chosen people. And when you take that into account, I don't think verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11 in Revelation sound awfully confusing. No, the church then, represented here by two lampstands, 
Um, two of them because uh, testimony in the New Testament, uh, in fact, throughout the whole Bible, was upheld by two witnesses. Um, two lampstands provide an enduring, unexpiring light witness to the gospel of God, not by their might, but by his spirit and in God's presence. For they stand, as therefore says, before the Lord of the earth. That's the second thing. The third thing is that the church proclaims God's judgment. So the reason why the world is without excuse is because the church proclaims this. Verse 5 says that as these witnesses, so in other words, as the church proclaims the gospel of God, which again talks about his salvation, but also his just judgment, that if anyone tries to harm them, fire will come from their mouth. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, like if you've read any of the Left Behind books, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins would take this kind of view that there will be an actual supernatural explosion of dragon-like fire from the mouths of people that will cut people, that will cut the enemies of God down, okay? Uh, the enemy, yes, that will cut them down. But I think, again, when you look to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14, this is what's in view, where God says to Jeremiah, um, these people have a serious, this is in paraphrasing, these people have a seriously false sense of security. Uh, like, I'm not bothered by their idolatry or won't do anything about their immorality. Well, they're wrong, God says, and in verse 14 of Jeremiah 5, he says, I'll make my words in your mouth a fire, and these people the wood it consumes. Now, does God mean for that to be taken literally? Did Jeremiah serve as a secondary flamethrower? No, he didn't. The word of God that came from his mouth was like a fire, like a fire, in the sense that it brought condemnation and judgment. It gave them a faint lick of the judgment to come from the lake of fire that they'd be thrown into. It's frightening. Now, I, I, I would say that that's where we need to go to understand what's going here. And I think that one of the enduring witnesses to the gospel of God comes as we warn unbelievers that God actually is angered by idolatry and immorality. And a word of judgment from our mouths, from the mouth of true spirit-filled worshippers that are part of God's saved and redeemed church. When we come with a word of reprisal to friends and neighbours, those who are not saved, when, when that's spoken, this is what's taking place. Fourthly, the church's prayers are powerful and effective. That's what we see in verse 6. Who do you know, if you look at verse 6 with me, who do you know shut up the heavens so that it wouldn't rain? Elijah, right? And who do you know turned things like water into blood and so on? Well, that's Moses from the Exodus plagues again. Now, how did they do that? Well, by God's power, of course, but if you look back carefully to those passages, you'll see that they employed prayer in the process, talking with God. They, of course, were given his instruction and did as he instructed, but they proclaimed such things in the hearing of others. And they prayed such things in the hearing of others so that no one would be in any doubt about who was the true originator of the power that would be demonstrated or who was the source of whatever type of judgment came, whether it was the withholding of rain or the turning of the Nile into blood. They did it so that God would be praised and people would know not to mess with him, okay? Now that's what the Spirit-filled church does too. 
And altogether then, in verses 1 to 6, it shows that through the church that's made up of worshippers, filled with God's spirit to proclaim God's judgment and who pray for that judgment to come soon and for God to be vindicated in his person, in his existence, in his actions, in his son's cross, in his son's resurrection and in his sustenance of the church, that people will realise who he is, that he will offer an enduring witness to the world as if to say, Look, listen, pay attention, open your eyes, break your hard hearts, don't harden your hearts. Now I want to, I wonder if you brothers and sisters in Charlotte Chapel see how encouraging that this is for us. That we are, according to this passage, measured by God. Um, in other words, uh, recognised by him to be true worshippers. When we properly, when we truly attest faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, believe the gospel for ourselves, we can be secure in him. That's what the measuring suggests. And to be indwelt by his spirit and so empowered by him to do the things that he asks us to do. That we proclaim the gospel and we're enabled to do that by him. It's a gospel that includes not just God's love and God's great salvation shown in his son, but also the warnings to heed. Repent, or you too will be judged. And we pray with the assurance that we'll be heard by him. I, my prayer life has been enriched through this study of Revelation. I really pray that yours has, I have been praying that yours would be too. When we see that these judgments and God's acts are, the prayers of the saints are all woven into everything that God by his sovereign plan is working out. It's an absolute privilege and joy. It makes me think, what, what an idiot, why not pray more before? Well, it's an encouragement for us to do these things, to be this kind of church. For how long? Until he comes. And how long will that be? Well, the message in here is, not long. That's what the 1,260 days, or the 42 months, or the three and a half years symbolise, or even if you take Daniel's uh, uh, times, times, and times, time, and half a time uh, from Daniel 7, that, uh, what then we see what's going on here. Seven is this perfect number. Seven in Revelation is the full number. Then half that number simply indicates a shorter period of time which of course corresponds with the angel's announcement in chapter 10, that there'll be no more delay when the seventh judgment is soon, the seventh trumpet is soon, and then the end, justice done, Jesus hailed, church transformed, new heaven, new heaven and new earth, and gloriously living in the presence of the lamb. The bride will meet her bridegroom. That's what it's all about. Well, the church is, uh, as we see, uh, that, that God has given the world his church. The church is God's witness to the world through its ministry. But there's more in chapter 11. It says in verses 7 to 14 that the church is God's witness to the world, even in its suffering. Now, the beast here is a picture of, the, of Antichrist who really throws his weight around like a great, big, powerful bully. Um, we're going to think a lot more about this 
in the chapters to come, especially chapter 13, because we go right back around in the loop and we go back to uh, to uh, to take a look at these types of events that have been described in both the seals and the trumpets in the bowls. It's like a different camera angle on a football match. You know, we're gonna we're gonna take the bird's eye view uh, next time we come round it. And uh, for for now, though, in this passage in verses seven to fourteen, we simply see in brief that the church's existence is endangered, okay, they're like an endangered species here at some point, it doesn't look good for the church. For a time, Satan's permitted to attack, the church will experience persecution, and although they have the protection of God that we saw in verses 1 to 6, it's not the case that they will not die. Uh, there are, There is uh, persecution and there is death, and when that happens, well, the world's sin is made plain. And the extent of a world's wickedness made obvious. You see that in verses 9 and 10, where the church's demise is celebrated by the world. We're gearing up to rejoice in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ at Christmas time. And one of the ways that we uh, show our delight uh, and show our love for each other is by the giving of gifts. But can you think of a time? When this city, described in relation to Israel's worst enemies, Sodom, and all its filthy immorality, and with Egypt its, and its vast array of idols, are joyful. Joyful, people in the world, joyful at the death of Christians and death of the church. It's not that hard to believe, is it? Not when you see people politicking. When you see the agendas where there are subtle ways of stepping further and further and further away from some of the Christian-based values that have shaped a nation like ours all the way through to people dragging bodies behind cars through the dust for miles and miles in celebration of the death of a convert that they found. It's not that hard to believe. Only at times it will be more widespread. The, church, the, the world at times will celebrate the church's demise by giving each other gifts. It will be like deathmas. But those celebrations, according to God's word, praise God, will be short-lived because the church is revived by God. So not even the worst that the enemy can throw at the church can actually defeat it. That's what we see in verses 11 and 12. It, it reminds us with the revival, the, uh, the, uh, the, the resurrection of the witnesses of the valley of the dry bones. The church will have life breathed into it again. Bones will join to bones, sinews and so on, flesh, breath of the spirit in there. The church is alive. The church is alive. And though persecution, as Spurgeon said, you can rip the gospel and the church to a thousand shreds, you can be guaranteed that every single piece of it will live and grow again until he comes. Well, the church is revived. Uh, to what effect? Well, the church's revival, really, 
in this passage in chapter 11 terrifies the ungodly. The church's friendship with God also terrifies the ungodly. They keep thinking, um, what's going to happen to us if we've just killed these people but they won't stay dead? I guess that's what they thought about Christ as well. It's what the enemies think of Christ. How can we kill someone who won't stay dead? You know you're going to get beat then. Well, in verse 12, John says he, church, he sees the church risen and revived and gathered to himself. Now, I wonder if that even sounds familiar to you. Is it talking about a rapture kind of thing where everybody's just going to be boom, beamed up? Or does it remind you of, well, Enoch and Elijah, two men in history who walked with God and whose walk was blameless in Enoch's situation and Elijah, who served faithfully in severely depressing and difficult times. Well, sometimes the Lord says of his church, or of his people, that'll do, up you come. It's home time for some before Christ returns. But this passage says the Lord will send more judgment signs that in times of revival will be accompanied by signs that will actually serve to awaken the ungodly. It will so terrify people into a state where they actually start to grasp what it means to fear God, to see who he is and to glorify in him, to hear his word, repent and believe the good news. So God has not left the world without a witness to his gospel God has given the world his word and his church as an enduring testimony of his salvation and of his judgment. That's point one. Point two, that's why in verses 15 to 18 that God is not unjust to judge the world for rejecting the gospel. That's what we see at the end here when the seventh trumpet blows. What we see in verses 15 to 17 is this guarantee fulfilled. The kingdom of God will come. God will keep his word. Jesus promised that the kingdom would come. The angel in chapter 10 promised, won't be long now, uh, that the, the kingdom is going to come. And he does. The Lord does come. His word never fails. And his kingdom will come and that will be that. Okay. Verse 17, the 24 elders are back and they are worshipping God still. Sounds like the same old words of praise, but they're not. Listen closely to what they say. Spot the difference. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have. Now, did you spot it? There is no is to come because this is his coming. You're like, why is it in the middle of the book? We're not even at the new heavens and new earth yet. Because in these cycles of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, we're basically having the same kind of stages of history replayed three times. It's like three cycles of the same things, all expanding, all from a different angle, all expanding our understanding of what life in between the comings of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be like. And here we have the account of what happens specifically to the ungodly when Christ returns. So the least that he has permitted Satan in this time is reined in. And as we'll see later in Revelation, when we view the same event from the different camera angle, he's thrown into the lake of fire. But Christ will reign and we'll reign with him. That'll be the reward of both the prophets and the servants, those who have been given his word to write down and proclaim. 
and those who have been the vehicle for those words throughout the ages, the church. It's beautiful. More to come on that in future weeks, but for now, let me just zoom on and focus in on this, the sombre point, that at the return of Christ, he will judge the dead. He will judge the ungodly. And that will be that. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and then later, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Here is the account of what happens when those who oppose God in this life find out that he is their opponent when they stand before him. And is he unjust in declaring them guilty? And as we'll see in later chapters, condemning them to an eternal hell. Well, the answer is no. He'll be so right that even they, in the light of his holiness, will agree with his verdict. Now, Michael Willock, in his commentary on Revelation, says this, There will be no false pity for the unrepentant. The fond hope that God might give them one more chance after death is contrary both to scripture and to reason. In this life, if this life is the time of testing, the opportunities of this life are as complete as any man could wish for. And we have seen to what lengths God will go to warn them. That's what this whole passage has been about. His word through the prophets, his church, the vehicle, the car, if you like, of those words. And he continues, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, which is a reference to God's word, they will not be persuaded though one would rise from the dead. If they hear not the first six trumpets, neither will they repent when the seventh ushers in eternity. For by that time, the bent of their heart is established beyond redemption. Wow, that's so sad. That's heartbreaking. I know people for whom that would apply right now. And I guarantee you do too. Doesn't that put things into perspective? Where we spend our time, the selfishness of our hearts, how easy it is to get out of making that, that time to phone someone you know, doesn't know Jesus, but you need to tell them, you need to build up relationship with them, spend time with them, show love. Doesn't it put Netflix and Amazon Prime and everything else into perspective. And who cares how many seasons of something we watch? When people like this will experience this. Oh sure, God's word says that some will just remain unrepentant and will harden their hearts whenever they hear it. But you don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. But we'll have to give an account for all those we did not tell. Well, the last word goes to those who don't know Jesus. Listen, the kingdom of God hasn't come yet. That's why you're even listening to this. But the kingdom is nearer now than it was when you started this video. I hear this testimony from God's word from John 3, that this is for you right now. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever, no matter what you've done or what your background is, that whoever believes in him should not perish like this, 
but have everlasting life. Now listen, we pay a lot of attention to verse 16 and not so much to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So hear this testimony from God. That's the testimony from God's word. Now hear this testimony from me, a spirit-filled worshipper that's part of the church at Charlotte Chapel who wishes to proclaim to you the end is near. It really is. Repent and believe the good news. Trust in Christ. His cross, the clearest demonstration of his love and of his mercy. Take refuge from this wrath to come before it's too late, before you die or before he comes back, whichever comes first. And then know the joy of this salvation and sing with all who know and love Jesus in Charlotte Chapel with these words. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ, I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armour for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the Golden Church.